So chapter 13 ends with a, a story you are very familiar with. I am very familiar with. Uh, this is now the uh, fourth different sermon that I have preached in this church on Peter and his denial. Um, it comes up twice in the Gospel of Mark. Um, I preached it topically one time um, for, I, I believe it's like a Maundy Thursday sermon or something like that. And so as I came to the passage this week, um, I, I kind of had a sense of what am I going to say that I have not already said about this very familiar scene? Um, what's something new here? And, and you know what stuck out to me this time? It's the rooster um, of all things. What's with the rooster? Um, and then as I looked into the rooster, I was amazed how much work, theological work, has actually been done on the rooster. And just how fitting that little quirky detail is to the story of Peter. The rooster is, as um, many of you know, is an obnoxiously prideful animal. Um, it walks around with this strut, kind of like he owns the place. Um, chest out, you know, ready to fight any who dare to challenge um, it's loud, obnoxious crow, tells the world, I'm up, it's time for you to get up. Um, the rooster is so prideful that you can literally cut its head off and it'll just keep running around in defiance to you. Um, I, always, I, I never knew that was true. I, like, I'd heard that before. Um, and so I YouTubed it, which I don't recommend. Um, <laughs> but it's legit. They will cut the chicken's head off and it just gets up and keeps going. What an arrogant animal. And when you think of it, you say, well, why are you so arrogant? You're just a little bird. When it comes to intimidating animals, it ain't the scariest. But it thinks it is. It acts like it is. And so it's fitting that the rooster forever marks the pride of Peter. When we think of the pride of Peter, we think of this rooster. Because the, the rooster is Peter. The rooster is us. And I want us to see that this morning. We're going to see ourselves in Peter's story in two ways. It's the sermon title and the proverb. We're going to see ourselves in Peter's pride and then see ourselves in Peter's fall. First, Peter's pride. It's difficult to identify at first, but uh, Peter's pride's all over verses 36 and 37. Let's look at them closely. 36, Simon said to him, Lord, where are you going? Now, that question seems innocent enough, right? Except that Peter is ignoring the very significant words that Jesus said. Remember last week, remember Jesus just got done saying something very significant to his disciples, a new commandment, a central commandment. And then, um, and, it, and it's that I want you to love one another as I have loved you. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But Peter completely disregards the command and says, wait a minute, Lord, where are you going? Kind of the, it's kind of like, yeah, 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 new command, love one another. But what I want to know is where you're going. It's not just insulting that he ignores Christ's command here. It's arrogant and presumptuous for Peter to expect Jesus to fill him in on this mystery that he's speaking of. If Jesus wanted him to know, he would have told him. But clearly he didn't. Jesus is being intentionally mysterious here when he says, you're going to seek me 
But where I'm going, you cannot come. Peter, well, where are you going? And if he wanted you to know, he would have said it. He just got done saying, you're going to try to find me and you can't find me because you can't come. Well, where are you going? Per usual, Jesus is very patient with Peter. He says, where I'm going, you cannot come now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter, in verse 37, says, Lord, why can't I come now? Honestly, he's starting to sound like a child at this point, right? Um, you, know, you know those times where you, you, uh, there's something you can't tell your kids, and either, either because it's like it's, it would not be good for them to know it, or they literally don't have the ability to comprehend. And so you just tell them, look, I can't tell you. You're going to have to trust me. Well, what do they do? Um, well, they certainly don't go down without a fight. Uh, just relentlessly questioning after question in different ways, hoping you will give in and fill them in. And isn't there a part of you that just wants to say, who do you think you are? I'm the parent. You're the kid. You don't need to know. I don't have to tell you. I don't have to answer your questions. You're just going to deal with it. Now be quiet. Is that only me? I hope that's, I hope that's y'all too. Well, that's what Peter's doing here. Ignoring what's most important to Jesus, which is his command to love, and fixating on where Jesus is going and why Peter can't come with him. And then he adds this ridiculously arrogant declaration. I will lay down my life for you. Peter assumes that Jesus won't let him go because Peter isn't macho enough or something like that. So Peter is, is here to tell Jesus that he can trust Peter. I will lay down my life for you if you'll let me go. It's just all so arrogant. But here's the thing. I don't think, and this is what's so important with Peter's story, I don't think Peter thought he was being prideful at all. I really don't. I think Peter thought he was being helpful, noble, courageous, perhaps even humble in a weird way. I will lay down my life for you seems on the surface to be honorable, not prideful. So his actions aren't arrogant. Well, they are arrogant, but I don't think they're intentionally arrogant. And that's why Peter's story is such a cautionary tale for all of us. Because in it, we see how insidious pride can be. Most of us do not fall into the category of outright narcissist. But what's behind our need to know things like Peter needs to know things in this text? What's behind the need to be in control like Peter needs to be in control in this text? What's, what's behind the need to be included like Peter needs to be included? What's behind the need to prove ourselves like Peter needs to prove himself? What's behind all of these things is our pride. If we want to see our pride, then we have to stop thinking of it as exclusively overt, obnoxious arrogance. That's easy to spot. And, and people like that, they drive us crazy and we say, it's so prideful. But we've got to stop letting that be the definition of pride and begin to see it lurking behind the subtleties of sin because it's always there lurking. Pride is the root of every sin. And here's the warning for us. As we see ourselves within Peter's pride, even the subtle, 
unseen, perhaps naive forms of pride. As we see ourselves there, we also have to see ourselves here. Even the subtle, unseen, naive pride is destined to fall. It's just not the obnoxiously arrogant who gets humbled. All pride is destined to fall. Peter didn't recognize the pride in his heart or in his words. He thought he was being noble, but it doesn't matter. All forms of pride are destined to fall, even the pride that we don't recognize. And we need to see that. So we've seen ourselves in Peter's pride. Let's look now at Peter's fall. Verse 38, Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. The thing about Peter's famous story that we often fail to appreciate is the degree of the fall. You see the contrast here in Jesus' words, right? You think you'll die for me? That's the highest, noblest, strongest thing he could do. I say to you, you will deny me three times. That's the lowest worst, weakest thing he could do. From one extreme to the other, from dying for Jesus to denying Jesus. We are so used to the story that we don't realize just how bad this fall truly is. Peter went from saying, I will die for you, to literally renouncing the Lord Jesus abandoning the faith, so to speak. A literal translation of what he ends up saying is, I swear to God, I don't know Jesus. But here's the thing. This isn't Jesus playing gotcha with his sovereignty. Oh, you think you'll die for me, Peter? Well, fine, I'm going to ordain it that you deny me and prove my point. That's not what this all is at all. Instead, Jesus knows the true Peter. Jesus knows how weak Peter truly is. Jesus sees Peter better than Peter sees himself. And Jesus is telling him that soon, Peter, I know you're wrapped up in this naive pride, but soon, Peter, your truest self is going to come out. This thing that you have constructed, Peter, is destined to fall and you will be exposed for who you truly are. You see, the thing about pride, and this is why it must fall, the thing about pride is that it's a lie. Fundamentally, it is a lie. It was a lie in the beginning when it first enticed Adam and Eve and it remains a lie in our own lives. And the lie behind our pride is that we can be our own God. The essence of pride is the insane attempt to be God. We should be in control of our lives. We should know everything about our lives. We should be sovereign over the situations and circumstances of our lives. We should be the lawgivers of our lives. We should be this self-sufficient, self-reliant, autonomous strength of our lives. We should be glorified and worshipped in our lives. The obvious fact that still bears repeating is that no, we should not. Even more so, we can't. Pride is unsustainable. 
Though we want these attributes of God, we literally cannot have them. So every attempt to have them will fail. The lie of pride will be exposed. The pursuit will come crashing down and we will be left facing the bitter and humbling truth that we just can't be the God we want to be. Or to say it more simply as the Proverbs do, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. What's that saying there is every time it is destined to fall. So let's, let's move from theory into practicality here to help us see how this important principle actually plays out in our lives. In light of our upcoming conference theme that's going to be taking place again a week from today, let me, let me, show, you, let me show you pride comes before the fall. Let me show you Peter's story of pride and fall working out in marriage, parenting, and singleness, okay? A little preview. Let's talk about marriage. Why do we tend to be bitter toward our spouse? Why are you bitter toward your spouse? If what we said in the first point is true, that pride is very subtle and lurking behind every sin, then bitterness in marriage is in some way connected to my pride. And indeed, it is. Pride says that I must be worshipped. I must be glorified. I must be at the center of existence with all things revolving around my wants and desires. Pride baptizes my selfishness as virtuous. But that's all a lie. God is to be worshipped. God is to be glorified. God is at the center of existence with all things revolving around Him. And nowhere is that lie more exposed than in marriage. Nothing like a spouse to remind you, you are not God. Our selfishness in marriage demands that our spouse worship us, love us ultimately, do what we want to do, meet my needs and my desires. But it's usually about in day one or two of the honeymoon before you realize that ain't happening. Nor should it happen. Your spouse should worship God, not you. And so the lie comes crashing down. Pride comes before the fall. And sadly, many of us, instead of repenting of our pride, retreat into bitterness of a spouse for not feeding our pride. Let's talk about parenting. Why are we so anxious about our kids? If what we said in the first point is true, that pride is very subtle and lurking behind every sin, then anxiety in parenting is in some way connected to my pride, and it is. Pride says that I should be in control. I want to be omnipotent, and I want to be omniscient. All-powerful and all-knowing, but that's a lie. God alone is omnipotent, and God alone is omniscient, and there is nothing like having kids to remind us of that. You don't have the power to protect them from everything and to force them to be who you want them to be. You don't have the knowledge to know everything going on with them, inside them, in their life, and to know what the future holds for them. 
And so the lie comes crashing down, doesn't it, parents? Pride comes before the fall. The the insanity of trying to be omnipotent and omniscient with our kids comes crashing down. And sadly, many of us, instead of repenting of our pride, retreat into this incessant anxiety over our children. Let's talk about singleness. Why are singles in our age so obsessively discontent in their singleness? If what we said in the first point is true, that pride is very subtle and lurking behind every sin, then discontentment and singleness is in some way connected to pride. And indeed it is. Pride says that I should be sovereign over my life. I should be writing my story. I should be the director of the providence of my days. And dang it, this is not how I would have written this story. I would write the perfect rom-com if it were up to me. But that's a lie. God alone is sovereign and the author of your story. His providence rules and reigns in your life. And so the lie comes crashing down. I'm not sovereign over my life. I cannot ordain my days. I cannot write my story. The lie of pride comes crashing down as pride comes before the fall. And sadly, instead of repenting of pride, many retreat into hardened, cynical discontentment over their singleness. Do you see how this works? Peter's story is a living demonstration of pride comes before the fall. And so is my story. And so is your story. Pride is a vain, unstable construction that will always come crashing down. It is a lie that we should be our own God, but it is a lie that will inevitably be exposed for the sham that it is. So the real question for us this morning when we talk application is not whether you will fall, but what you will do when you fall. You know what my application is this week? What are you going to do at the bottom? When your pride, your unique pride, falls, and it will, as I said, it's inevitable. Pride comes for the fall. So we're all prideful. It manifests itself in different ways. It's going to come crashing down. What are you going to do at the bottom? When the vanity of your pride is exposed, when your spouse shows you that you aren't at the center of all things, when your kids show you that you are not omnipotent over their lives, when your singleness shows you that you are not sovereign over your days, or whatever other way your pride comes falling down, what will you do at the bottom? I see people, and I would say myself too, I see us respond two different ways, and they're both wrong. Some people stubbornly refuse to give up their pride, even when their pride has brought them so low. What is inevitable is that pride comes before the fall. But what is not certain is, the pride, is that pride is given up after the fall. What's not certain is that you've gone as low as you can go. You can go lower. You can fall greater. You can hold on to your pride until it brings you down into the depths of despair. And even then, I have seen people not relent. 
Many will hold on to their pride even as their pride takes them lower and lower and lower because it's more important to them to hang on to the lie of their pride than to get better. We see that one play out, not in Peter, but Judas. You can go look at his story. That's his story. He just won't give it up. And, you know, how could I not say... um, if, if you are refusing to humble yourself and give yourself to Christ, uh, you just need to know that the fall is just going to continue. And you can just keep holding on to pride. If, that's what you, if, if you want to keep holding on to the pride and not give up and give in to the Lord Jesus, you, you can do that. I'm just telling you, the fall is going to continue. The fall will continue until you let go and humble yourself and turn to Christ. But do you know what I see more common at the bottom, particularly for Christians? Viewing the fall of our pride as a temporary lesson in humility, as a reminder that we are not good, that we are not God, as a sanctifying moment that leads to repentance, and then we get busy working ourselves back up. That's the pattern I see in my life, most of all. The Lord brings me low. I see the vanity of my pride. Thank you, God, for the lesson. I've been rebuked. I repent. I'm sorry. You are God. I am not. And then I get busy constructing it again (laughs) until I fall again. And the pattern goes. Thanks for the reminder. Lesson learned. And then I go back after my prideful pursuits until they come crashing down again, and I repeat the same pattern. Thanks for the reminder. I'm not in control. I needed that. Go clamoring to gain back control again until the next painful reminder. So it's this cycle of pride, fall, lesson learned, temporary repentance, back at it again. Do you know what the other option is? To the bottom? Stay down. Stay low. Being low is where you are made to be. Repentance is being content in weakness, content in dependency, content in not being in control, content in not being in the know, content in not being all about you, content not being God. Just stay there. And when you are there, content not being God, you will discover a God who loves to pick you up. Pride comes before the fall. And if you try to work back up with prideful pursuits, you will fall again. But if you are content at the bottom, God will meet you there and he will pick you up. And that's what happened to Peter. Jesus has been arrested. Peter is following at a distance. You know the story. They recognize Peter. He denies that he knows Jesus. And it says that Jesus turns and looks right at Peter, and Peter comes undone. But it's easy to misinterpret that look. It wasn't a, told you so. It wasn't, how could you? It wasn't a glare of anger and disgust. It was, I see you, Peter. I see you. I knew it was going to happen. It happened. I'm still here. I'm still arrested. I'm still going to the cross. At the bottom of your fall, beneath the rubble of your pride, Jesus is there, ready to die for you 
You're not your God. Jesus is your God. But your God loves you and is willing to die for the sinfulness of your pride. In arrogance, Peter says, I will never deny you even if I have to die for you, but he failed. In love, Jesus says, I will never deny you, Peter, even if I have to die for you, and he did not fail. Jesus is who Peter thought he was. You know the other symbol of the rooster is, don't you? A new day has dawned. The old is gone. The new has come. A second chance. I think every morning, it's another reason why I think he ordained the rooster, so that Peter couldn't escape it. I think every morning, the rest of Peter's life, he would hear the rooster crow. He would wake up and be reminded of his failures, but also his Savior's faithfulness. And this is what is waiting for us when our pride collapses. It's the sobering news that we aren't God, but it's the good news that we aren't God. Because the true God is the God who loves prideful failures like you and me, a God who picks us up when our pride has brought us low. After the, after the Protestant Reformation, churches in England, across Europe, churches across Europe, um, were looking for a way to construct their uh, construct their churches, but set themselves apart from the Catholic churches. Um, how are Protestant churches going to be designed? And obviously, the um, the the number one tradition in in that day and age was a steeple with the, with a cross on top. And uh, Protestant churches, and this there's a move, this is a, a, a something that took off across Europe. Protestant churches decided to put a different symbol on top of their steeples. They, they began to put a rooster up there. As a reminder that this church gathers as failures of our pride, but also the faithfulness of our God. I'll close with the words of Peter himself. Transformed by his failure and the Savior's faithfulness. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He might exalt you. Let me pray. Humble us, O God, that you might lift us up. Forgive us for help trying to lift ourselves up. Forgive us for our pride, which offends your glory. Forgive us that it's everywhere, lurking everywhere. May we repent on the deepest levels, but most of all, May we trust in a God who is faithful when we are faithless, who meets us when our pride collapses around us and picks us up. Lord, let none of us hold on to our pride, but give it up, humble ourselves, and confess that you are God and you alone. Lord, we pray that now as we come to your table that proclaims that message. In Jesus' name, amen.